0: And this is the much-fabled green-majority environmental news program. I am baking like a neglected worm in the hot sun on the white concrete. I have crawled out in the midsummer rain, and now I am flat dry and crispy having not found my way back into the soil we are on CIUT 89.5 FM or on your local community radio station or on a podcast platform harbinger media network shout out the international socialist media conglomerate
1: it's not international it's very hyper canadian
0: yes nor is it a conglomerate not even a corporation let alone let alone more than one combined into a goopy mash I am David Franklin Erwin Hostetter with Stefan Christian Irwin Hostetter. Lauren Elizabeth Corlatour is not present today. We're not sure why. She seems to be on the lam. She's visiting friends and we've lost contact with her. Pray for her soul.
1: She's having a great time out east.
0: Out east. Okay. She's on the east coast. And Stefan will be interviewing Julie Levin of Environmental Defense. Wait, what are you talking about?
1: We're talking about the most recent Announcement from the federal government and specifically Minister Guipo about how the feds plan on fulfilling their promise, actually fulfilling Canada's promise, which apparently was made 14 years ago, which I did not realize until doing the research for that interview. To phase out "quote unquote" inefficient fossil fuel subsidies.
0: Inefficient fossil fuel subsidies, and so you're talking about what they mean by inefficient, what they're actually phasing out, what they should be phasing out,
1: and, and exactly, and and how they will test what inefficient means and what that means. And then we end up talking a little bit about a secondary piece of news that was also came from the same press conference about a plan to expand export development Canada's restrictions on supporting fossil fuel public money for fossil fuel projects in Canada. But that's a bit of a further way is out.
0: All right. Stay tuned to hear the official verdict on the word inefficient. And we're going to do some political climate, climate, political, political climate. We We need a word for climate and political combined. That's like geopolitical, but but not. We're gonna do some news. First, Stefan is going to talk about Climate Justice Toronto and their work with tenants.
1: Yeah, so I just wanna give a quick shout out to the Climate Justice Toronto and their work in organizing environmental groups from across the city to come together and support the York Southwestern tenant strike. The residents of thirty three King Street and twenty two John have been on a rent strike since June fighting against above-guideline rent increases. The property owner Dream Unlimited has claimed that its decarbonization efforts are not connected to recent rent increases, however, Climate Just Toronto has pointed out that highlighting these efforts while trying to raise rents is still a form of greenwashing that must not be accepted. Over the past 10 years, different owners of the 33 King Street have applied for six above-guideline rent increases. And if we as climate activists are going to create true solidarity across sectors, we must support these kind of efforts to keep the city affordable and to ensure that rental income isn't being sucked out of our city into corporate coffers.
0: Protests have returned to Ferry Creek, former deputy chief of staff uh, to Stephen Harper, it's an article I read, and, and he was a principal secretary to Jason Kenny. Howard Anglin, uh, recently wrote an article in The Hub in support of the original protests. Now, the original protests won a deferral on old-growth logging in the Ferry Creek watershed. The point that this conservative guy makes is that Teal Jones, the company being blocked, is currently licensed to harvest $20 million worth of timber in B.C., and Ferry Creek is only a small part of that. Meanwhile, BC is, is, is spends, you know, whatever, $20 million just to build one new school. So what's what's interesting about that is just that this guy who worked for Harper and Kenny, I mean, these are big industry, these are big Canadian like resource extraction dudes, is saying he supports the Ferry Creek protests.
1: Um, yeah, so a new blockade has showed up on a bridge over the Gordon River which is hoping to prevent logging of some of the largest section of old growth in the watershed. They've built an effigy of a screech owl that is sort of blocking the road itself. And they've, they've set it up uh, on July 30th. And so we'll see how long they are able to protect it. And again, this is only one specific blockade. There are many roads in. And this is one of the difficulties with covering a lot of this. Th- these pieces is that the logging industry in B.C. is so huge and there's so much disinformation and difficulty to get information about what, quote unquote, old growth even means. You know, there's like super old trees. When we say old growth, we think about thousands of year old trees. However, pre- I mean, the
0: 200 year old tree is a pretty old tree still.
1: Sure, they're still old, yeah, but they're sort of like there's like these different definitions, and then what allows the BC government to do is say, oh, we're not actually we're protecting ninety percent of old growth, but if the ninety percent they're protecting is is what would never be logged anyways because it's actually just hard to get get to or access, and the and they're just allowing the parts that are easier to still get logged, that doesn't sort of go back to this piece of how important it is to protect these trees, like a thousand year old tree. Any single pathos tree in my mind should never get cut down. Like it should, it should exist in protection and perpetuity because it's a living being that has importance in the history of the space and the ecosystem.
0: Yeah, for the purpose yeah. of a few million. Like
1: well, exactly. You know? And the other thing that's doesn't get mentioned enough, and I saw it mentioned a little bit because I happen to follow a few folks who are really deep into the logging industry and the conversations around old growth and other things in Canada is how connected the wildfires that we've been seeing are to logging. That the logging industry and the types of, quote unquote, forests that are left after after they're logged are actually drastically more likely to burn than natural habitats. Natural habitats have a lot of other fire suppression and a lot of other growth that exists. That's not just straight trees. And those—and so a lot of the worst firefighter, part of the problem with the firefighting, or so part of the problem that is creating all of the forest fires is a lack of forest management that, that comes back to the actual logging industry as well. And so it's not just that there's this conversation about old growth that has to be had. This also has to be a conversation about how the logging industry, which from my understanding is, I mean, we've seen it at play in BC. It seems to be like inevitability. There's a saying that we heard in previous interviews about this, about talk and log, which is that the government just tries to delay and delay and delay as more and more land gets logged. That's just how they manage it. That's like a a truism that exists within activists in DC. And so you can see how much influence that implies from the logging industry. And so pay attention to Ferry Creek and and the sort of renewed efforts there. But there's also just larger conversation has to be had about getting to a place where the logging industry is not in such control over the decision of our natural resources. And we're not there yet, that's for sure.
0: When one hears of people protesting logging and one hasn't thought about the problem or looked into it at all, it can be like, you know what's wrong with cutting down a few more trees, right? This is our this is our thing. But these trees are actually qualitatively different from just any old tree that's being logged, right? These are these are a national treasure. Well, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, uh, speaking of firefighting, Democrat Senator Kirsten Cinema is proposing a bill to cut the wages of federal firefighters in the United States who fight wildfires. Now, Joe Biden. They, in their infrastructure bill, temporarily increased the pay of of, of wildfire firefighters, but the increase is now lapsing. And so now they're proposing a new bill, being like, okay, it's going to decrease again. You know, just managing the decrease, right? Trying to soften the blow of the decrease. But no matter what, they have to introduce a bill cutting the wages unless they're going to keep keep it up was what it was temporarily increased. I mean, it sounds like the fires are dying down. So anyway, uh, but also on wildfires, the village of Lytton, BC which was destroyed by wildfire two years ago, is suing Canada's railways. The cause of the fire has not been declared by any official body, but the lawsuit reads, quote, on June 30th, 2021, despite the extreme weather conditions, current wildfire risk, and the ongoing wildfires in the area, both CP Rail and CN Rail continued railway operations in the area of the village. So they're they're implying that. The railways caused the fires in some in some degree,
1: right? Which is likely true due to the sparking. We've seen similar things happen in the states where power companies were charged with with starting the wildfires in California, which ultimately led them to declaring bankruptcy when they were found liable. Which then created a whole problem where they started doing brownouts as a way to avoid starting other fires and causing other problems. Which is why corporate control of these public pieces of infrastructure is very bad, but it is important to understand that these are the types of problems that are going to keep happening as we have a more corporate controlled infrastructure. And I think it speaks to the problem of corporate controlled infrastructure, right? That CP rail can cause a fire fire that destroys a town that will require a ton of rebuilding and most of that money, if not all of that money, is going to come from the public coffers, And even if they successfully try to hold CBRL count, as we've seen in the States, what happened there was that the power companies went into bankruptcy to avoid paying and found a way to restructure the debt and sort of like avoid paying the full amounts and try to get back out of it. And that's a way these large corporations can use to avoid these big payouts. And if we are going to have this massive infrastructure, allowing it to exist in the hands of private industry is is going to be quite problematic. But then going back to your other story about, uh you know, Kristen Sinema and Biden, even when it is in the public sphere, we somehow can't seem to realize and appreciate the desperate need we have for these people. Like the fact that the United States can spend $835 billion on its military to fight wars across the wor- world, but cannot imagine protecting its own citizens from forest fires in a way that even comes to close to any of that or California, which I've said many times before, uses prisoners to fight forest fires. like how on earth can the need for global hegemony be so much more important than the lives and livelihoods of your citizens who are burning? do to these forest fires. Like, you have the largest, most complex military in the world. You should also have the largest, more comp- most complex forest fighting industry in the world. Because, like, what else are you doing with the National Guard if not trying to protect your citizens at home?
0: The United States government does not consider itself beholden to its citizens. They consider themselves beholden to the massive flows of money and power that are like dictating its moves.
1: Clearly, there are. A ton of different structural pieces here, but it just blows my mind that there could be a bill and that someone like cinema can support a bill to reduce firefighters pay, which strikes me as like the biggest gimme that you could get in terms of like supporting climate action and adaptation is protecting and supporting the people who have to be on the front lines to fight these forest fires. Like, There's a whole bunch of other things they should be doing too, like supporting FEMA, which they also haven't done in any real way, and disaster relief and stuff like that. But it does just speak to the level of which public services outside of the military in the United States seems to be ignored. And I, I say outside the United States, in the United States, but honestly, we've seen the same thing here. Doug Ford has uh, underfunded or removed jobs against force fighting force fighting. So has uh the conservatives in Alberta. And so this reduction of forest firefighters fighters does seem to be a thing that conservatives across the board are aligned on, despite that, what we see is increased need for them, time and time again. But one can only hope that this
0: well, one can only hope that the American military implodes under its own weight. That's what one can help. Forty-eight percent of their budget they spend on the military stuff, and forty-eight percent. Yeah, it makes no yeah. sense, and and they don't even know. They don't even have to. Re- they don't even have to report where most of that a lot of lot of that money even goes. The Pentagon is like, we don't know where it went. Don't ask us. You can't ask us because we're developing top secret weapons. So they should all uh, go home and do something else. Um, yeah. Daniel Boguslaw reports for the Intercept that Biden is making a stupid political move by supporting green energy projects like battery factories and wind and solar, while not guaranteeing that there will be union jobs. But the jobs in the fossil fuel sector that will be lost as a result of that investment are our union jobs. So here, here goes Mr. Union Joe. His 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 he has this green energy strategy, but those jobs could actually. Will undercut union power. So, I mean, the the point that this author is making is simply that he's going to upset unions with his with his infras- with his green stuff, which is dumb.
1: Yeah, I mean, what's confusing is I remember distinctly one of the requirements to get a lot of this green investment was to be in a union, and so I am wondering whether or not that got pulled out due, during the debates, or whether or not it just doesn't cover everything. I'd have to sort of do some bigger, deep, uh, some bigger, uh, some deeper digging, because that was one of my understanding of one of the requi- one of the expectations was that that would be a piece of it. But I guess that also depends on. Well, you
0: know, slippery Joe. He likes to slip and slide out of certain things.
1: I mean, it could easily be that he's supporting other battery factor, other things in another way that are not directly connected to his infrastructure bill that does have the that requirements. That's totally possible.
0: In any case. Yeah. in any case, there's there's a certain amount of green infrastructure funding that is not doesn't really care about union jobs that he's that he's putting in
1: there yeah and and that is obviously you know going to be that's a problem because you need the union unions to be on side on climate action and so if you're not finding ways to sort of bring them along then you're going to have a much much harder if not impossible fight uh especially as they get into the weeds with different utilities and things like that which is going to be a a mess. So, the point that I'm making is that the utilities are another block, and so without, if you have the union against you and the industry against you, the chances of beating the, the utilities is very low. Like you need someone else on your side who has power to enable and act this change.
0: And finally, four years after Canada's national inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Over half of the 231 recommended actions have not been taken by Canada, and only two of them have been completed. So there was this whole national Canadian outcry, like coming together, like feelings thing with Trudeau. Obviously, he's always in his feelings, being like, we got to do something about this ongoing genocide. And then, there, and, then, and then on top of that, there was the Catholic school stuff with the residential schools that all of those bones getting dug up and it's still sort of just like Canada, the institution, Canada, the corporation always does as little as possible. And so it's, it, it's still, it still has this, this genocidal intent through inaction and through continue and through not caring what industry does and uh, abetting the brutalization of, of indigenous protesters and indigenous people trying to reclaim their land. So it's just like. Well, yeah. I don't know what to say about it exactly, but
1: I mean, if there's one example of the of the failing right now, it is the Winnipeg Police Department refusing to search the landfill for missing and murdered indigenous women and then criminalizing the people who are protesting them and acting as if the graffiti that is showing up against them across town is a major crime that is being investigated Whereas there, are, when it, whereas there are people certain there are bodies of their family members in this landfill that they're refusing to put money to. Like, if you can't do the bare minimum, admit you don't care. Like, come on, search that landfill.
0: That is a very grim story. It is. We refu- we refuse to even see if there are bodies here in this massive pile.
1: Yeah. And claiming lack of resources while going out of your way to criminalize the people
0: telling you to do your job. Put resources towards the criminalization of, of your critics.
1: My name is Stefan Hostetter, and I am here with Julia Levin, the Associate Director for National Climate at Environmental Defense. Thanks so much for being here.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: I'm, I feel like every four to five months, we get you to come back on the show to like slowly give us the update of this unbelievably long process to see Canada get rid of quote-unquote inefficient fossil fuel subsidies as preparation. I was reading some of the different people's opinions about it and the International Institute for Sustainable Developments sort of highlighted that the first time this was mentioned was 14 years ago.
2: Yeah. 2009 is when the, when Canada first committed to eliminating inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. It's, it's been a long time coming, these new rules. Yeah. That's so long. And it also means that it's been reiterated by successive governments, right? Not just not just liberals, but also conservatives along the way. But it took it took Minnesota to make it happen.
1: Yeah. And so perhaps we can start there for those. You don't have to give us the whole 14 year history, but if you can give us a bit of a backstory about how we got here, I think that'd be a helpful way to set the scene.
2: Sure. Yes, I have not been working on this for 14 years, but I have for four years. So it's still been a while. So back in 2009, G- G7 countries first decided that you know, it was no longer acceptable for public dollars subsidies to go towards fossil fuels. And they made this commitment. A few, few years later, G20 made this commitment. They said, they said they'd get it done in the medium term. And then a few years later, they put a 2025 deadline on that over, over the course of these first years they added in this word inefficient. Commitment to ending inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. That's the only way they got all G20 countries on board. But it is pretty problematic since inefficient means nothing in this context. It's what I call a weasel word. Basically, it lets countries claim anything that they want to is efficient. Because of because of how nebulous this was, The at the G twenty level, they did set up an international process to help countries do self reviews of their own subsidies and then do a peer review with another G twenty country. Canada committed to doing a peer review with Argentina in two thousand eighteen, over five years ago at this point, just over five years. We in the last five years, there's been very little progress. Environment and climate change. Canada has has put forward some of their thinking over the years. Finance Canada has just stonewalled any attempt to to gather information from them but but here we are in the government has published these rules i should also say as part as part of this context how the government understands subsidies so when when the federal government says subsidies they mean spending from government departments so that is you know tax credits that finance canada develops or the grants and loans that departments like Natural Resources Canada give to, in this case, oil and gas companies, it does not include the financing that comes from Crown Corporations. So that not included in, in, in this commitment is the, is the on average $10 to $13 billion that Crown Corporation Export Development Canada gives to oil and gas companies each year. There's a separate, separate track of promises to phase out that side of things. And and we can circle back, but that's part of the context. What's a subsidy? What's public financing? What are we even talking about here?
1: Right. Yeah. And I'm I'm glad that you prefaced the fact that this idea of inefficient basically means nothing because definitely one of my questions was going to be, what on earth is meant by that? Because I think part of that is. Even from a public messaging standpoint, it's the obvious question, right? Like, if you are even a member of the public who may be pro or con fossil fuel subsidies, the dropping the word inefficient into the middle of this context does seem to muddy the water basically no matter what, because it really, really means that you can be talking about anything and it does not provide any clarity.
2: No, it really doesn't. And so so what the government released on Monday... Is basically the a framework for assessing what inefficiency is, and that's why it is. We can talk more about what what it what it does, what these new rules do. But that's why this is a milestone because Canada is the first G twenty country to really develop some guardrails around what inefficiency is and isn't. I will say that you know this all of this conversation is about subsidies, public financing. It didn't need to be. This complicated. I think part of the strategy is to get us staring at each of the trees instead of seeing the forest. And the forest being all of the ways that the federal government provides financial support to the oil and gas sector. And so, deliberate or not, that's been the that's been the impact of having all of these different approaches to different pieces of money that's been given from all of us to wealthy oil and gas companies feeling the climate crisis.
0: Right,
1: and so. My understanding is that there are two parts of the announcement. There was, you sort of teased that out there earlier about how there was a piece about this public financing and there was the piece about the subsidies. So let's start with the subsidies. Can you tell us what they actually announced?
2: Yeah. So at a very high level, they, they established, the federal government came up with this, this framework that helps departments determine what's a subsidy. And then from that, what, sorry, what's a fossil fuel subsidy? And from that, what is what is efficient and inefficient? I will say that there, one of the things we've been asking for for a very long time and, and, other, and other parts of civil society is that the government used the World Trade Organization's definition for a subsidy, because that is very broad and captures a lot of the measures from, from government departments, and they did. So we are starting from a wide base collecting most of the ways that federal departments are supporting oil and gas whether that be loan guarantees, transfer of risk, direct grants, loans, etc. And then they put in place three really important principles. They said basically, they said in order to align government spending from this point forwards or in order to align government spending with our climate commitments, this policy requires federal departments to ensure that all federal spending supports the transition towards renewable energy and in their quiet voice, away from fossil fuels. That part wasn't explicitly said, but B, considers the alternatives. So that's a clear call to you know renewables, et cetera, being, being affordable alternatives. And most importantly, federal spending must align with the pathway to limit global temperature rise to below 1.5 degrees. Which, of course, your listeners will know is a really important threshold beyond which we're getting into irreversible climate catastrophe. So, that last bit, aligning with 1.5 degrees, is very powerful. The rules themselves do lay out a number of problematic exemptions. But what we're going to hold them accountable to is that overarching criteria and that any of the that, that actually really restricts the exceptions so the, so there are exceptions so the exceptions are basically what governments can decide what government departments can decide are efficient and don't have to be eliminated and that's things some things that are valid like emergency response if there's a blackout communities that that are off the grid and are currently dependent on diesel those those are you know perfectly necessary Potential uses of government spending right there's another one about indigenous indigenous communities benefiting from from projects. The ones that we are really concerned with are the ones that there's one exception that says clean energy and another one around abated fossil fuels and projects that have a twenty thirty plan so those are those are those are bad so bad big exceptions except for the half dual line to 1.5 degrees, because what that does is effectively close the door on any government spending for new oil, gas or coal projects.
1: Yeah, I mean, that is potentially huge, right? Like, we are so close to 1.5 at this point that I truly cannot imagine almost anything being able to be claimed, and even when you think about subsidies, say, for for reducing the cost of flights, you know, aviation subsidies, which I know is a piece of the philosophy subsidies. Even that in my mind is not aligned as one point, right? Like we truly cannot be flying as much as we need to. And therefore, even something that is so specific in terms of reducing cost to consumers, which is basically mm-hmm. what it is, subsidy to consumers, still wouldn't be one point five aligned in my understanding, begins considering how close we are to that threshold in the first place.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's why that's the part of the policy that that that's a, that's the reason why there was actually a lot of praise for these new rules, but we have to hold them accountable to that. And one of the real issues with with how these new rules were released is that there's nothing in there about enforcement or accountability, which is a real problem, especially on subsidies where there's been so little transparency. So the government can even can even tell us like, what amount of money this would rule out. Or what measures are actually going to be impacted on the tax side? There's the Parliamentary Budget Office has recently updated some of their analysis because we, we as Environmental Defense Canada, we have a running tally of subsidies, but we don't include Finance Canada's data because that's never public. But the Parliamentary Budget Office can get their hands on it. And, and there's about $2 billion of foregone revenue each year to oil and gas companies. Will those tax credits be closed? They should, but we don't know yet. The government said there's on the non-tech side, there's 129 measures that have been reviewed. That should be made available public. We should be able to see this analysis. Minister Guibault did promise a reporter when asked for his press conference to release that information. He said he would, but we're still waiting.
1: Right. Yeah, because that is obviously the next question, right? Like how did this even roll out? You know, like cause some subsidies are tax breaks. I presume other subsidies is just in you know, the next year's budget just wants to include money going to things, I would presume. Like what are the different ways that this money gets doled out?
2: Yeah. So each department is now responsible for reviewing any time it wants to create a new a new program, a new funding program, or for finance, a new a tax measure. They now have this framework, and it's like literally a flowchart that says does does this measure confer disproportionate benefit on oil and gas? Go to the next one? Does it fit any of these exceptions so each each time a cabinet minister approves a new measure before doing so they they have to go through this exercise. The issue is unless we see that analysis about aligning with one point five then it's hard it will be hard to to for this for this new system to have a lot of credibility if the government just says hey this spending measure we found it aligned with 1.5 but doesn't share anything about anything about how about that analysis so there's real questions that we have in terms of accountability who's going to keep the departments accountable they like none of that none of those questions were answered in 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 the release on monday so those are things that will continue to press The government on because they have to they have to address that. And and accountability can't come from civil society parsing through various government websites and news releases trying to fit these pieces together. There has to be a a more responsible process than that.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, especially given how it seems more and more the freedom of information requests and the government itself has become just less transparent. It seems like I'm constantly seeing more and more Frustration coming from reporters when they are requesting information from the government. It takes a year or two. And then sometimes it's just redacted or not incomplete, at which point, like, you could tell us whatever you want. If you don't make it clear how it's happening, you know, anything could be happening. And you could claim you have all these policies i mean it's a little bit like how we somehow consistently have all these new policies that are should be reducing emissions and our emissions continue to go up like, Oh, <laughs> how is that happening it's well you know because we can't hold people accountable in these real lives
2: and that's what yeah it's it's a, it's a clear gap i i do think regardless it it does show a change in approach we, I, the proof will be in the pudding for sure but it does set it does set an example for other countries as as they also deliver on their commitments to end inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. There are some countries that have gone a step further and maybe not in their final decision, but at this point in time are are considering just calling all subsidies inefficient, which is what we should have done as well.
1: Yeah, for sure. And so before we get to the second part of the public, let's go back a little bit to some of the concerns you have with this particular one. Because I know that from the reading I've done, the biggest concerns are in the places where they allow in quote-unquote abated emissions. Or these other ideas of how if we can capture the fossil fuels Mm. or do something else, capture the emissions, then suddenly all is fine again. And like, I think for a really high-level understanding, or not high-level, like a little surface-level understanding, it makes a lot of sense? You're like, oh, yeah, well, I mean, why would it be a problem if this coal plant is capturing all its emissions? That does seem like it's basically clean energy, so why can't we do that? And so can you talk about why that's so problematic and, yeah, why it's such a huge loophole that they've created this whole system?
2: Yeah, that's, that's the loophole we are most concerned with. We were not necessarily surprised because the government has just created massive subsidies for abatement, including carbon capture and also hydrogen. So we're not surprised that, they're, they're, that this loophole exists, but, but, it, but it, is, it is a very alarming one. So carbon capture, what is it? It is, refers to a collection of technologies that you can put on a high emitting project, like an oil refinery, to capture a small amount of the pollution that comes from it. Not to be confused with direct air capture. They're two different things. Carbon capture at best stops some pollution from reaching the atmosphere. In the oil and gas sector, to talk about abatement for upstream oil and gas from the production of oil and gas makes no sense. Because as your listeners know, most of the emissions that come from, from oil and gas come from when the oil and gas is used in our homes, and our cars. So so first of all, we are, we are focusing on less than 10% of emissions. We're ignoring 90% of the problem. Secondly, carbon capture itself. I mean, this is not new technology. We're hearing about, a lot about it now, but it's not new technology. It's been around for 50 years and has received massive amounts of investments and in research and development for the last five decades. It's been around so long because its initial use was oil and gas companies especially oil companies there was there was a little like as their as their wells as their reservoirs were more and more depleted they couldn't reach the last bit of oil and then they figured out if we capture carbon we could actually use that to get the last bit of oil that otherwise we couldn't have this is called enhanced oil recovery So, most of the carbon being captured today is to dig out oil that otherwise wouldn't have been recoverable. So, most carbon capture actually ends up putting more emissions in the atmosphere because that oil then gets burned. Okay, leaving that aside, five decades later from when this technology first arrived on the scene, most projects never make it off the ground, 80% of projects, those that do completely underperform. So, I mean so base, so so why are we still talking about carbon capture given it has a track record of failure and underperformance given it actually doesn't do anything about most emissions that come from oil and gas it's because oil and gas companies see the writing on the wall the energy transition is inevitable they see it coming but they want to delay it as much as possible to get as much profit as they can from their assets and that means justifying ongoing production. And, and they do that through greenwashing themselves through dangerous distractions like carbon capture. So this is entirely a greenwashing strategy from the oil and gas industry that government is completely falling for. Two years ago, when Minister Freeland was developing this enormous tax credit for carbon capture, well, it hasn't actually passed yet, but it's in the process of getting passed, 400 academics sent in a, like leading Canadian scientists and academics urged her not to go ahead with it. They said, this is dangerous. This is a waste of taxpayer money. We could be spending those tens of billion dollars on climate solutions. And you want to throw them at a speculative techno fix that justifies ongoing production when we need to transition away from fossils? That's dumb. She ignored the academics and she listened to big oil lobbyists. And that's what's happening with the new rules. The fact that we have these loopholes in the subsidies rules is really, really demonstrates the ongoing influence. Of the oil and gas industry in climate and economic policy decision making.
1: Yeah. And so much of it is just so blatant, right? Like as you said, the oil extraction emission capturing is, again, from an even tertiary understanding, so obviously only half the point. Like you then burn the fuel. It becomes like it's every single oil and gas company. And Gordon, that is not even to mention the fact that almost every oil and gas company, you can sort of watch them in real time speak out of both sides of their mouths because they'll say something like, oh, we are going to go, you know, net zero, but also we are going to increase our emissions and increase exploration past 2030. And to me, even just admitting that should count as a violation of 1.5, right? Like to me, if you are giving money to any company that is planning on from still in expanding oil and gas past 2030 you are giving money to a company that is not aligned with 1.5 yeah and 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 i don't see how in any way you could not understand that very simple metric and i think obviously the government does understand it because every time any of their environment ministers leave suddenly they begin to know <laughs> it again
2: yeah
1: you know it's not like it's not like they don't know because seconds after they walk out the door, they're like, actually,
2: all those things are bad. And you're like, "Yeah, we know. Well, I didn't just say it when you were minister. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that just shows how beholden government officials still are to, to the sector and how much the oil and gas, how effective the oil and gas sector has been at capturing, capturing governments, but also capturing our imagination also creating a narrative where they pretend they're way more important to the economy than what they actually are downplaying i mean we know we know this is these are companies that have spent 40 50 years lying about climate science spreading disinformation and and now especially under this new under the pathways alliance this this the coalition of the six biggest tar sands companies running running ads nonstop about how they're part of of the net zero of the net zero future Governments are so keen to work with them, and it, these are the same people who have been just blocking climate action for so long, and and it's and it really is the biggest barrier to climate action in Canada, and you can see you can see that reflected in these new rules. So we really do need to close close the door on any potential subsidies going to carbon capture, and similarly to to hydrogen, to especially fossil hydrogen, which is which is this like new energy source that. Everyone's, ex- well, the oil and gas industry is excited right now because they want the kind of hydrogen that comes from fossil gas, but again, relies on the promise of carbon capture. And not only does carbon capture ignore the 80, 80 to 90% of downstream emissions, it also ignores the upstream methane leakage that comes when you dig up and transport oil and gas, which we know is a really, really powerful greenhouse gas. So this, the carbon capture is not a climate solution. It should not. There should be no carve outs for carbon capture specifically for the oil and gas sector. Yet, in the federal budget, in budget 2023, where about 80 billion dollars were made available to to clean energy, about 60 billion of those 80 billion are accessible by carbon capture and hydrogen projects. It's not all necessarily going to that, but it's available too. So. We are really at this dangerous point in time where we may be taking a huge amount of public resources and throwing them at very speculative techno fixes that that are not going to help us. And that's sorry, and, and just to segue off, part of the and part of these new rules are about phasing out the bad. With all these caveats and exceptions that we need to get closed, but but at the high level, they are meant to end government spending on fossil fuels. We know we have to phase of the bad and also invest in what we want to see more of. And so part of the issue here is, is the opportunity cost behind fossil fuel subsidies. So, of course, anytime you give, you give money to oil and gas companies, you are fueling climate disaster, but you're also taking money away from things like public, public transit, renewable energy, from making our homes more energy efficient, more comfortable ending our dependence on volatile commodities that lead to cost-of-living crises. There's just so many benefits from shutting the door on fossils, taking that money, and shifting it towards real solutions.
1: Yeah, for sure. And so let's pivot now to the other announcement, which I think in some ways might have been a little bit of a surprise in that it's not, not directly connected, but it's still connected in terms of public money. Because last time we spoke, we spoke a lot about Export Development Canada, and how actually a ton of money that the government spends isn't even through sort of what these subsidies are, but actually through Export Development Canada. So can you tell us, like, A, just recap for our listeners exactly how that works, and then B, what the new rules were?
2: Yeah, so, so Export Deve- Development Canada is, is is a export credit agency. It's supposed to support Canadian businesses operating abroad or that want to export their goods and services. And it's it's significant here because it's the biggest vehicle for providing public financing to oil and gas companies. Export Development Canada, on average, provides $13 billion a year to fossil fuel companies last year. So I mentioned that Environmental Defense generates a yearly tally on where fossil fuel subsidies and public spending is at. Last year, the number was $20 billion. 19.5 of that was through export development canada so the fact that the new subsidies rules don't include public financing is alarming because 19.5 out of 20 billion like this is most of the government support to the oil and gas sector what the government did they didn't announce new rules unfortunately what they did do is announce a timeline on on ending domestic public financing i sh- i should add that That last year, the government committed to ending public financing for international projects. So that is the support that Export Development Canada provides for for companies abroad, for projects abroad. And even though you think, okay, that's most of the support, it's an export credit agency, it's actually very little, very little of EDC's support. It's around, around 10%. Of their support goes to international oil and gas projects, so we ha- we did get new rules, really strong rules last December, which ended the international chunk of it so're so so if you think of it kind of as a three prong approach, the first was ending international public financing we, that was done in December with, with a pretty strong policy. Second, ending fossil fuel subsidies. These new rules move us in that direction. but the lion's share is still domestic public financing. And the government c- committed to ending all of that. They, in 2021, they committed to, that they were going to one day end it. They committed to developing a plan. But for the last two years, we've heard nothing from them. And we've asked often. And they had made no progress. So what Minister Guibo announced on Monday, and, and I think he had to fight hard to be able to make this announcement, really. But he announced that they would be developing a plan by fall 2024. That's all it was a deadline, a timeline. We didn't have that timeline before, but the timeline for a plan, obviously, obviously at the moment in which people across this country and across the world are facing devastating climate disasters where they're dying from climate disasters. Waiting another year for a plan is inexcusable. So we're calling, you don't need a plan. You have an international public financing policy, expand it, add domestic public financing, end it all, and do it by COP28 is our is our what we are demanding from government gives you a nice platform you get to announce it on an international stage but you don't get to you don't get to spend another year providing 10 billion dollars to fossil fuel companies to the executives who are getting rich from destroying our chance at a livable future
1: well, yeah and also there's a little bit where i am shall we say skeptical of plans or timelines that take you past likely an election, you know, like when you say I'm going to do this thing after I may not be in power anymore, what I hear is I'm not going to do this thing. And given, again, the timelines you, you state and the current polling numbers, it doesn't feel like. We're going to get there. You know, like if you were Stephen Gabow and you knew you have maybe eight months, maybe a year left as environment minister, which is not guaranteed, but certainly well within the possibility, Mm -hmm. you would think you would want to lock in a few of these wins before you are unceremoniously moved to backbench status or lose your seat entirely. And so like, these are the kinds of things that I find a little bit harder to take The government seriously. Like, when, if you want me to believe you care, then get the things out before you probably lose power. Because, like, yeah, the next government may ignore them anyways, but at least you've set a much better precedent than if you just hand the ball to them and say, hey, you know, what do you guys think? And let me guess, Pierre Polyev is not going to come out and say, you know what, we should do follow through on this plan. No, like, that's not. Not what's going to happen.
2: No, it was so interesting. Just kind of connected to that last point. So interesting to see oil and gas companies respond to this because they maintain, have maintained that they don't receive subsidies. And then having to insult a policy and still maintain that they don't receive subsidies was an interesting balancing act to watch them, watch them, watch them try to do. I just a, a little bit of a response. It's, this was in the mandate letter of Minister Freeland. and and Minister Gibault, but also Minister Freeland. And I think we can tell who the real obstacle for getting more aggressive rules out there was. Like Credit where credit's due. I do think Minister Gibault fought hard for more ambitious policy. And even, even, even ECCC over the last four years has done public consultations, has shared their thinking, shared inventories, and Finance Canada has just provided no information ever to anyone so, between Finance Canada and Minister of Finance, I think we know where we can lay blame on weak climate policy, both this but but more broadly, because, as finance minister Minister finland has there has her has her hand on a lot of important policy files. I'll leave it there,
1: yeah, sure, yeah, well, I know I look forward to hearing what Gibo thinks when he is no longer in it's government <laughs> that'll be his book tour will be fantastic, I'm sure but. We're wrapping up. Are there any other things that you'd want to highlight? Anything that is something you'd like? Be like, it'd be easy to miss this, or this is something I want to make sure that I get across for people.
2: Yeah, uh, a lot of folks were kind of confused about why we did have as 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 many of the environmental groups who have been working on this file had had a more positive reaction than than the many activists out there. So just to, like, provide some transparency on some of of that, part of it was because there's elements of this, that alignment with 1.5, that provides a clear accountability hook and is really strong language for us to be able to use. And part of this, we want to define what this policy looks like. We don't want to go out there and say, oh, there's room for this, this, and this. No. Aligning with 1.5 means shutting the door on really, on really any fossil fuel subsidies maybe with exception emergency response and, and communities like tiny 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 little exceptions but it does mean closing the door on fossil fuel subsidies so we have to define that and then the government has to show us how they're meeting how they're meeting what they've promised but what we've defined as the key parts of their promise and that and now we have a we have something really tangible to hold them to account on. We will continue to play the role of oversight as long as is necessary, as long as the government continues to fail in its duties to provide transparency. So definitely keep checking out environmental defense to see what the yearly ongoing tallies are. And I but I would I would say that there, you know, at at the time when there is so much pessimism with government action, there this we wouldn't have gone this win without Hundreds of thousands of people clearly showing their opposition for continued fossil fuel subsidies. Today, we released new numbers from petitions sent from across Canada within the last few months. And 140,000 140, people have sent letters to Minister Freeland saying, cut all subsidies, don't fund dangerous distractions like carbon capture and storage. Then, that that's why we get. We never get full wins, but that's why we, we do need to celebrate wins like this. To get the government to com- commit to 1.5 alignment in the in all of their government spending is is a milestone worth celebrating. And we have to take them where we can. So I will leave on I will leave on those boards. But we have we have big fights coming up this fall because there's also the proposed cap on emissions from the oil and gas sector, and in the next couple of weeks, new regulations around around making sure our electricity system is net zero by 2035. So there's just so much going on right now. It's a really key moment for everyone to to be holding the feet of their 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 political representatives. Hold their feet to the fire. Let them know that you care. That that you are watching what they're doing.
1: Yeah, amazing. Thank you so much. I always learn so much talking to you. This has been Julie Eleven, the associate director of National Climate with Environmental Defense. A congratulations on getting this far, and B. Good luck in the next upcoming fights because this work never stops.
2: Sure doesn't. Thank you so much for having me on your show again. And I look forward to coming back.